Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we are doing a wrap-up episode from our A Thousand Plateaus reading group on the plateau, the postulates of linguistics. And before we get started with that, I'm hoping to post this episode very shortly after we finish recording it because this coming weekend, which the dates are, can you remind me of the dates? It's February 25th and 26th. 25th and 26th. Yeah, we're going to be recording or we're going to be holding two sessions of a reading group. You can find out more on our Patreon page. We're going to go into on several regimes of signs. We are just about to close out our reading group of A Thousand Plateaus. But that doesn't mean you can't sign up now because all of these plateaus function as a standalone. Plus, we have a backlog of recordings that you can access if you just sign up for as little as a dollar. All the support that has been offered to us has been wonderful, and we just want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Adam or Will, is there anything that we want to say before we kick things off with regards I mean, to things we're doing? Yeah, go ahead, Will. We'll have updates about upcoming, like the, these reading groups aren't over. There are some really exciting reading groups that are going to kick off as we close off, as we close off and finish up A Thousand Plateaus. But I think Adam should really bring up the, the Bataille reading group. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, no, so just first of all, on the A Thousand Plateaus, we've got quite a few plateaus to go, actually. We've got the geology of morals, we've got faciality, we've got the coming animal. God, I think uh, we've got maybe one or two more. We've got, we've got abstract machines as a conclusion as well, so about four that's of right. them. And then, of course, yes, we have the Bataille reading group. So we recently finished volume one of The Accursed Chair, and we are going to be following up with volumes two and three, which are on eroticism and sovereignty especially, and this is especially good if people liked our episode with Stuart Kendall on Nietzsche or communism, because volume three is mostly about Nietzsche and mostly about communism. And I think at some point, possibly in the meantime, we're going to be doing uh, a little bit of reading on something from The Limits of the Useful, which is a new book of Bataille's has been translated, which is an early draft, really, of the Cursed Share volume one, and it comes with lots of plans he had for volume one. And sometime early March, we're going to be having the two translators of that work on to discuss it. So it's going to be great and new, fresh Bataille stuff off the presses. And that's what we do. We're just putting together interviews. Like, like Adam said, we have the translators of that very fresh Bataille translation coming on. We have David Bentley Hart coming on the show. We have in the works a potential guest for a spot with us on Zero Books with Etienne Balabar. That has not yet been solidified, but the promise of that looks pretty solid at this point. So if you support us, that allows us to do more things like that. And so with that said, let's go on to discussing the postulates of linguistics. And what I think is interesting about this plateau, just to kick things off, I think there's two preliminary things that we need to say. The first thing among them is that, in a sense, this really isn't about linguistics in the conventional way of understanding the term. There is a figure that Deleuze and Guattari confront in this plateau who actually appears upon several occasions in A Thousand Plateaus, which is Noam Chomsky. And in some ways, he serves as an incipient example of a, a kind of regular move that they make throughout A Thousand Plateaus, which is confronting the presupposition of binaries of any sort, of, of transcendental binaries. I mean, you could think about very simply good and evil, but how do we go beyond good and evil? Well, Deleuze and Guattari are going beyond the, the sort of initial predicates of Noam Chomsky in the form of his syntagmatic model of grammar and this idea of universal grammar that he believes exists within each one of us, either as a kind of genetic component or simply just theoretically speaking, as the way in which we all receive grammar. So I think it's important to talk about Noam Chomsky's theory of linguistics a little bit. And so Deleuze and Guattari are going after what I think are two fundamental presuppositions. One is this universality of generative grammar. So that no matter who you are on planet Earth, whether you're from Malaysia, whether you're from Estonia, whether you're from Zaire, or wherever else, you are born with this cognitive capacity to internalize various forms of particular grammars in virtue of this sort of transcendental template that exists inside all of us. The second presupposition is that this syntactical structure of the sentence forms the basic unit of grammar, which is itself defined by this inherent binarism. You know, 
depending on what, what tradition you come from, you have a noun phrase and a verb phrase, a subject and a predicate. And what Chomsky believes is that all well-formed linguistic expressions involve these components and they port into either one of these categories. And it's by virtue of these categories that we're able to form linguistic expressions. And I think it's important to note that there have been scientists who have tried to prove Chomsky's theory neuro-linguistically and all of these efforts have, have not yet panned out. So the classic dualism Gattari move is to get underneath the, this binaristic presupposition and then formulate a theory of what we could call maybe a minor language or a minor grammar against the Chomskyan majoritarian grammar. So it's by showing the facets of the minor grammar that we can unsettle the alleged irreducibility of Chomsky's sentence, or the big S, as they say in the rhizome plateau, to show that it's incoherent or is forced to explain its conceptual consistency, which they believe that it can. And the way that Deleuze and Guattari do this is to show that language at base is not informational. The idea of a universal grammar presupposes transcendental syntactic carriers of semantic content, which therefore presuppose the informational character of language. But all of this for Dulles and Qatari ignores the fact that there's a politics involved here. And these politics are also presupposed in Chomsky's big S, which is the primacy of this majoritarian grammar. And so what they do is they posit this other concept that we're going to dig into which is this idea of the order word, that the, the very base unit of, of grammar, of linguistics, is this command, this intensive command that, that subsists in every linguistic statement. And linguistic statements are overdetermined by these, these, these order words. And so with that said, maybe I'll pass it off to Adam to either maybe fill in any gaps that I left out, or maybe he wants to go right into order words. Well, just to begin, actually, with a slight return to the Chomsky, and this is something that we did cover a little bit in our episode on the rhizome plateau, but the elementary sort of pattern of Chomsky in linguistics is the tree. When Deleuze Guattari talking about trees, they're talking about Chomsky, even though many times they're talking about Chomsky, they're also talking about Kant, but let's bracket that out for a bit. Because Chomsky in linguistics and Chomsky in link computational linguistics is a way of computing the truth of a sentence syntactically, or at least the conditions under which it would be true, or the meaning would obtain. And so take the paradigmatic example here of a sentence from Tarski, which is the idea that the sentence, snow is white, is true if and only if snow is white. So the sentence has a function of the, the sentence as an object, or the sentence as a thing, stands in for a fact about the world. Early era Wittgenstein, and you might say to Lazarus later era Wittgenstein. And the Chomsky tree basically takes it, the sentence is the overcoding unity of it, and it breaks it down into these little branches. So you have snow is one, and then, or snow on one branch, then is white on the other, then you take is and white to break it down even further, and you can show how of the truth conditional semantics of all of these, let's say how the semantic value of the information stored in each of these words comes together to form a sentence that can stand in for a fact about the world. Now, the problem is, is that this example is trivial, but it, yeah, Deleuze and Tari want to change the example here. Because what does this mean when someone says, you know, I now pronounce you man a wife or I declare war? It's, it's not exactly computing in the same manner as a truth function. Or say when someone says, would someone rid me of this turbulent priest? Which, yes, may communicate something about a desire to be rid of a certain person, but it's also in many ways a opening of a certain political space or a, a political allowance by the person uttering that to go kill the priest. It actually is not about so much what the semantic meaning is at base, you know, it, it's primarily about what things do as opposed to what they mean. This isn't to say that Deleuze and Tari think there's no such thing as meaning, but meaning is secondary to function, because ultimately the, sort of, the idea of truth conditional semantics, the idea that the truth of the sentence snow is white is conditional on there being snow and it being white, is something which ultimately is itself conditional on functions, namely the function of the sentence standing in, representing a fact about the world. Now, if you put functions 
before representation, then maybe representation is just one function among many. And if representation or signification is one function among many, so a signification, you know, a signifier, as its function is to present a signifier, is to refer to a signified, then function undergirds all of this. And given that they're working from a cybernetic standpoint, people like Gregory Batterson, who observes entire environments and their outsides, humans and their outsides as part of wider systems and wider ecologies, then they're not going to preserve the, the sort of the sacred unity of language as a self-contained system or as a complete system. And as such, there is a political stance to be held as to what language means. And of course, it seems trivial and or even sort of almost offensive when you say it in the case of Snow is White. But think about, I, I declare war, I pronounce you man and wife. The, the institutional structure's recognition, which change people in what they call incorporeal ways. Then the things get a bit more heated. You get, and this isn't something retained in purely the analytic, the, the continental philosophy tradition, but the analytic as well. This is why I love J.L. Austin so much. And so the politics of language is ultimately a question of, insofar as everything is functional, what are the forces which arrange language into these functions. And one might think this is this is just purely relativistic, or they might say it's postmodern bullshit, but then then again, how, how many transformations of people's relationship to language, to their own communities, to the formation of a nation state were inaugurated by something as simple as is the bread, is the host, is the wine, the body of Christ? Not when the priest lays their hands over it and they say the body of Christ, is there an incorporeal transformation that actually happens there? In the, in the substance of the bread, or is it an incorporeal transformation of community, or is it simply not biblical at all when you can go be a, a Calvinist or something? And this stuff has real import. Uh, yeah, so I, I was about to go on the rant there, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I want to I want to speak about the 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 real importance of like not letting this incorporeality become just like a, an archival incorporeal materialism that we see that props up in like a particularly Anglo academia because I think that the the examples that they give are not just Austinian how to do things with words, articulations of like proper place and proper utilization of like a juridical assertion, right? Which which Austin is going to be very careful to say that like these things only function in as much as like a judge says it in a particular place, like the performance utterance only works in these contexts. What I actually think that Deleuze and Guattari are doing is a little bit more ontologically like one of the examples that they that they have is the declaration of war that produces a period where i'm just going to read off of the off the page itself war and peace are states of interminglings of very different kinds of bodies but the declaration of a general mobilization expresses an instantaneous and incorporeal transformation of bodies so it's not just uh, a performative utterance, but it in fact orders the way in which the world is brought forth, the the way in which like a biomass of soldiers is understood. It becomes real. Loose German children in a classroom are now a platoon of soldiers, mm -hmm. and this is a a real and substantial uh, alteration. The other example that they give is also a great one: is liturgy, right? Where where communing with Christ is also an intermingling of bodies, properly spiritual bodies that are no less real for being spiritual in a sense, recalling old liturgical theories that right through the process of saying this is the body of Christ, it becomes real. You know, Cassell's liturgical work speaks to that. But then finally, and this is all just on one page, then finally, I think one of the most fascinating examples that they give is how the order word functions in relation to the history of sovereignty. They, they kind of dispense with the philosophy of right in a paragraph where, where they argue that the origin of society is, quote, quite strange. A passage from the state of nature to a social state is like a leap in place, an incorporeal transformation occurring at zero hour. So for them, they, they, they articulate sort of a comparable to, to the history of the philosophy of right that I think one can find in Foucault, but even throughout history in, in the sort of historicist tradition of Boulanvier, like all these other accounts of historical and political political right, they see that though history may never may never be rid of of dates, politics needs this incorporeal transformation that occurred at zero hour and never stops occurring. Right? It, the the subject under power is always in a state of tension. And what keeps them in that state of tension? The order word.
right? Yeah. It orders reality. So in a certain sense, this makes me want to say the, the dreaded thing, which is like Deleuze and Guattari are doing just really good political ontology here too. Mm-hmm. I know that upsets Todd May, <laughs> but, but they're doing, they're doing, I think, just very solid political ontology that renders things intelligible, right? It makes the convict someone who can be understood, the, the delinquent someone who can be understood and injects them into a discourse on criminology without which it wouldn't be possible, right? So what the order word does is it structures realities and makes realities intelligible to two subjects who then understand their position, right? But also allows, allows new forms of, of knowledge. And their work on Kennedy's crowds and power also speaks to this as well. But yeah, so that's just my, my opening. No, that's great. And, and I'll just bring it back for a moment because there's, there's a refrain within the work of Gattari, and we see it again in the subsequent plateau on several regimes of signs, which is the idea that language, well, there is no language in itself. There is no universality of language. And so when we think about like what an order word is, it's, it's this base unit that comprises what we understand as language, but nothing, there is nothing about language as we understand it that's reducible to a notion of language. And the question is then, well, then how, how is it, do these order words work? Well, they have this inherent command character to them and they function via redundancy. By redundancy, we simply mean like a frequency of use, the frequency with which these order words are heard or encountered in language and their resonance, meaning the kind of power that they maintain in virtue of other sort of political intensities that, that undergird them. And so, what does an order word do? Well, it, it emits this kind of command, right? And the idea that there exists something like a universal grammar, well, is itself a power marker. This is, this is their critique of Chomsky, is that the, this capital S, this, this formation of the subject and predicate as being universally presupposed, has all of these political determinants. And what, they, what Deleuze and Guattari believe is that language is not life. It, what language does is it gives life's orders. Life listens and it waits. And the one thing that they want to clarify about order words is they are not determined by anything metaphorical or analogical because that would return them to this, this notion of representation. But everything proceeds via a kind of indirect discourse. And the reason that's important here is because they, they provide an important example by saying that bees like bumblebees, don't have a language. And the reason that they say that is bees cannot transmit order words in the same way that human beings can. So, for example, when, when a bee leaves the hive and it goes and it finds a flower, it finds the flower and says, ah, I got to go tell the other bees. When the bee flies back, it signals to the other bees, hey, I found the flower. However, only the bees that have seen that bee do the flower dance know that the flower is there. That order word or that command does not traverse the body of subjects in the same way that something like a signifier or something like a word meaning does in the human language. And to them, that's important because what happens is in the field of signifiers, it's it's by virtue of our contact, let's say, with a sign, with a gesture, or with any any body of meanings that we can receive these order words, we can receive them these emissions over a long stretch of time or across space in in, in a way that other animals cannot. So these these are just some of the sort of incipient contours of the concept. So to begin, the last Guattari aren't saying that there's inherent authoritarianism to language and therefore we must abandon it. Let's let's get rid of that <laughs> misconception straight away. It is simply the idea that Reps are four significations are significations. They are functions of standing in for something else. If you look at everything functionally, then a statement is a way of ordering the ways in which the information within it can be communicated. It's not that communication doesn't happen within language. It's that it's secondary. It's ephemeral. Well, not sorry, ephemeral, but it's secondary to the production of stratifying different ways in which meaning can go, which life can have a certain meaning within a given context. And this is why the surgical example is so well done. And I think really, it, it's hard not to say, look at the enemy when we talk about this dual aspect of language. I, mean, we, we, I could go back and say, look at Kierkegaard. 
and think about the order word there. If language is all about transmitting truth semantically, then we go back to Kierkegaard's story of the man who goes, I, he escapes from an, uh, an insane asylum and he says, I'm just going to only say true statements and they'll think I'm mad. So the only thing he ever says to anyone is that the sky is blue. And then they realize he's mad because the only thing he ever says and he gets locked up again because actually there needs to be a contextual aspect of signifying one's relationship to a community and to the communal debts that forms that community and to the communal power structures of recognition. Because recognition does not convey a meaning on what so, someone before it conveys upon them a function or an integration of them into the social whole. But I'd like to read out actually a couple of quotes on the order word from the Postlets Linguistics. This is, these are both from page 88 on the Bloomsbury edition. When the schoolmistress instructs her students on a rule of grammar or arithmetic, she is not informing them anywhere any more than she is informing herself when she questions a student. She does not so much instruct as in sign, give orders or commands. And I think this is very good when okay, you might hear something in English like, I'm not simply informing you about something, I'm telling you something. I'm not saying, I'm not, if, if I say, go do this, I'm not saying this is one thing you can do. And I, my desire is that you should do it. It's, no, it's saying, go do this. And it's accept what the meaning of this word is and then go and do it. And there's another quote here, which I think is great to follow up with, which is, language is not made to be believed, but to be obeyed and to compel obedience. And this is a, a little break I put here. We see this in police or government announcements, which often have little plausibility or truthfulness, but say very clearly what should be observed and retained. The indifference to any kind of credibility exhibited by these announcements often verges on provocation. This is proof that the issue lies elsewhere. And one can even go back to how Sartre talks about the anti-Semites. The anti-Semite does not knows perfectly well what they're saying is bullshit. That's not the point of it. But even the police tactic of barking, when a policeman is barking at their victim and says, stop resisting, they are not actually informing them that is an option for their body to take. That is an order word to order themselves to continue, that the beatings will continue. And if you look at the function of newspapers, the function of newspapers is not to inform, that is to create certain levels. Of, I mean, the reactionary transphobic columnist has no clue whether what they're saying is true or not. Doesn't matter if they believe whether it's true or not. That's not the function of it. When I say that newspapers are predominantly stochastic terrorism influence, stochastic terrorism is not something you can understand under your precept of Chomsky and linguistics. Because these people do not give a shit about the truth of the, what they say. And it doesn't matter because the language is meant to has a specific function of stochastic terrorism. When one says, would someone rid me of this turbulent priest? They are not providing you with an informative communicative aspect other than a command to rid the king of that turbulent priest. And I think this one of the, the great political needs of one of a Sefiri like this is the enemy knows well that the, the language is not something that is purely communicational. They know it has an ordering function to reality. And not in the sense that because they say it becomes true, but because there's an integrated aspect that life is what is ordered by language. If we didn't say that, then we wouldn't be able to order someone to, you know, to hail a cab is to order life through language, through signification. To say stop thieves, to cry for help is like this. And I think this is something we really need to take on board if we're going to understand the stochastic terrorism that lies at the heart of the enemy's practice today. I don't think it would be a stretch to say either that when you hear someone like Ben Shapiro say something to the effect of facts don't care about your feelings, what that statement intends to invoke is the representative function of language, using it, mobilizing it in a way to deactivate the other expressive, illocutionary functions of language that their enemies use, which are convincing. And, and, and compel a certain attitude, action, or feeling. And so I, I think it's important to see how th this function of language that's upheld by Chomsky and being critiqued by Deleuze and Guattari are actually mobilized in, in the same way that Adam is saying about stochastic terror. Um, which actually brings me to another point that Adam and I have been having this discussion about, the book that we've been writing, and this idea that, that comes from James Hillman, which is this idea that we are made up of agonies and not polarities. And there's a very agonistic or a Dionysian 
sort of character to language when we think about the order word. When we create signs, when we create symbols, essentially we're creating binaries. You know, when we say snow is white, for example, when we look at the predicate white, we're talking about either a matter of category or a matter of degree. But what certain linguistic statements like snow is white do not capture are ambiguities and nuances. That, that's the thing that they, have, that they have trouble dealing with. They also have trouble dealing with different senses that don't adhere to sort of common senses of what is meant by snow is white. And I think what Deleuze and Gattari do in their book on Kafka actually works really well with apostolates of linguistics. They invoke the linguist Vidal Sefiha, and I think I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. What he says of Kafka's work, well, they use his theory of linguistics to analyze Kafka's work to say that what Kafka does in the context of the German language, which in Kafka's experience is a majoritarian language, is that somebody who speaks either a pidgin version of the language, or if they speak some sort of dialect of the language, or if, for example, they're, they're a foreign national and, and they're learning the language, it's often the case that those folks can do things with the language or see things within the language that those who speak the language as quote-unquote native speakers cannot do. And what they say about Kafka is he exploits these tensions or what they call tensors within the language. And to use the language of the postulates of linguistics, it's almost as if Kafka in his work is plumbing the depths, plumbing the agonies of the German language and, and ordering his sentences and, and ideas in such a way as to elaborate that which is ordinarily not expressed in the majoritarian mode of speaking or writing that language. And I, I just think that's an interesting concept with which to approach what they're doing in, in the postulates of linguistics is, is basically they're trying to with the order word is to, to sort of navigate the complexities of the agonies over and above the polarities presupposed by, by Chomsky. That's really important <laughs> because like when we think about like what the more difficult tasks in, uh, in say a destituent ethic would be, it would be the destitution of language, right? It would be probably the most complicated relationship to 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 the word and in a certain interpretation of the epistles like what what does the word do the word is that which deactivates language right it deactivates the the rule of the law so the distinction between word and order word is really important here too because when we talk about the function of the order word to bring it back to kafka for them what kafka exposes is that every order word carries with it judgment Right, capital J judgment. So, in a sense, like it carries with both the the, the circumscription, right? So, the the utilization of of and the connection of concepts, right? But also, what is necessary is the circumscription and and execution. They say like it carries a little death. There's a little death in every in every invocation of of the order word. And for them, it doesn't simply say communicate or transmit communication, but it, it shows kind of a map. And that map, basically for them, and we've already covered this, I, I don't know if we did a wrap up of the plateau, but the distinction between the map and the tracing is really, is really important here. So I want to, <laughs> so I, I want to bring it way back to the function of, of judgment in, in the order word here. And maybe I think Adam you would have something to say about the use of judgment in this plateau. So, Kant time. So, judgment is more or less what Kant bases the categories on. A judgment is a spontaneous act of thinking whereby we apply thoughts to sensory experiences. For example, I see a black cat and I say, I, I, the, the, I think that the cat is black. Or the I think can be a, the I think doesn't have to be there. It just formally has to structure it as a possibility of it being there. And the order word is essentially, uh, if you bring into structure of judgment, then judgment is the forming of things into subject and predicate binaries. We say that X is Y. Subject to the sentence is Y predicate. And of course, limiting the, the, just the sphere of what can we go around the is, is one aspect of the political here, but also as an aspect of what can be tied down to an is. What can we recognize? What can be granted the incorporeal transformation that comes with some predicates? For example, the incorporeal transformation of this is the body of Christ. That's a judgment. 
You know, it, that is bread. X is Y, body of Christ. And the order of in the judgment, I mean, the idea of death, I think the idea of death is mostly because there's a, a cutoff for coming insofar as something is, impo- an order is imposed on it. And there's, there's a little way in which this happens in which this word could mean something else. It could be attached to a different signifier. And this is the inmanspatory potentiality of something that's called recoding. And for listeners, we covered this actually in our episode with Jules Gleason on gender transitions and the idea of recoding parts of the body to with new words. So the idea of, example, the recoding parts of one body's and sexual activity, the, re- the leather daddy recoding of the, the penis, for example, or the dick. I mean, the, let's put the suffix ussy. Brilliant idea of recoding. It, we, we can laugh, but it's actually a brilliant idea of this, the idea of recoding things in this way and the way in which people can recode themselves with, for example, various xenogenders, an example, are great ways of recoding and life escaping the formal binaries of coding in this way. And so I think that it is an escape from, or at least a little break out of certain structures of judgment. And they can even think, and to go for her examples, Edouard Glissant, the great theorist of, of Creole, of the Creole language or Creolization of languages, likes something like Deleuze because it shows where the, the, the grammar is actually usually a top-down imposition. And not only do we see this in the marginalization of sort of ways of talking pidgin English or sort of local dialects of English. I mean, for fuck's sake, in Britain, we, we call them grammar schools. If you go to a grammar school, you're probably going to be all right. It's, we lay it on pretty thick. And despite the fact this is an island, or well, well, it's not an island, it's an archipelago. It's an island because of overcoding and order words. But it's an archipelago. It used to have so many different languages on it. Well, and still does, but they've been minoritized and suppressed. Gaelic, for example, Scots, Cornish, uh, Manx, all of these particular minor languages, even just the, the languages of, of other pe- of people speaking today. I mean, if anyone who comes here and speaks language is not English, they're pressured to not use English. And that's not because English is the most efficient way of communicating semiotic flows of information. Absolutely not. And even if it was, that wouldn't be a good reason. It's, it is a top-down imposition of words to order their lives according to a dominant form of, of Englishness, a dominant form of grammaticality. One can still communicate with grammaticality, but if one can communicate with grammaticality which is not recognized by the majoritarian or by the, the master, then you can conspire against them. And this is exactly what happens, for example, with the maroon slaves in Haiti, people like Mackendale, because these people, people came over from Africa with ontologies, with ideas, with languages, with religious traditions. And the white slave masters couldn't recognize this. They were stuck in a majoritarian all word position of this is good or bad. This is a Christian or it's devil worship. And yet people could take, because they couldn't understand what they was looking at. And I go into this actually a lot in our book that they couldn't understand the languages. They wouldn't understand the languages. And therefore, there's a space in which you can break apart from them and think about ways to emancipate yourself and fight against this enemy that tries to impose these order words of language down upon you. And there are particular structures of judgment which try to impose universal categories. I mean, is it any wonder that Chomsky is essentially Kantian and then moves on to the question of anthropology and the various kinds of spiritual race science that him and, of course, Hegel would then go on to pioneer? in the so-called Enlightenment European science. Let's talk about speech act theory. We talked about the analytic philosopher, J.L. Austin. We might know, or maybe you don't know, that Deleuze was quite enamored with analytic philosophy. Actually, Deleuze is one of the greatest analytic philosophers that has lived. However, these days, analytic philosophy is in ill repute. But we'll leave that aside for now. But at least in the day of J.L. Austin and his great work, How to Do Things with Words, he posited this theory of illocutionary acts. And I, I won't give an exhaustive list of the theory because there, there's various categories of illocutionary acts. But for J.L. Austin, it simply means that within language, there are implicit, non-discursive presuppositions as opposed to the potentially explicit assumptions by which a statement refers to other statements or external action. Language is not about communicating information. It's about transmitting a code of orders, promises, affirmations, commands, and so on. And when we did the reading group, I had put forward the example of the Pledge of Allegiance as this sort of daily illocutionary act that 
students, kindergarten through 12th grade, at least in the United States, are forced to do as a way to avow their allegiance and loyalty to the United States. It's a kind of promise. But I was trying to think of like, what is a more basic, like what is one of the most basic illocutionary acts? And I was thinking long and hard, and I thought about it. The game of peekaboo is an illocutionary act in the sense that what we attempt to do when we play peekaboo with a child, of course, we are in front of the child. The child sees us there, but by disclosing ourselves, putting ourselves behind our hands and then peeking out from behind him and saying the word peekaboo, what we are essentially doing is we are fitting the world of our revelation, of our appearance with the phrase peekaboo, which then the order word is I, I am here. And, and, and in a sense, I, I think there's a way that we can think about peekaboo as being the most basic kind of jurisprudence about human subjectivity. I'm not here now. Now here I am. I announce my appearance, my, my being in the world. And I thought like, well, do, does this have any consequences for the way that we, we deal with reality on the regular? And I have a very strange example. I'm going to venture it here. I, I know, I think I've told Adam and, and Will about this before, but when I was young and in, in my early 20s, I lived in the, the suburb in California for a while. And I had a very, very strange kind of angry neighbor. And I was in the band at the time, always like lugging band gear from my car back and forth to the house. And one day, my neighbor just had an absolute meltdown. I, I heard it from my window. I was probably up on my computer. I ran downstairs and suddenly the other neighbor comes out and then I come out too to figure out what's going on. It sounded like somebody got hurt. Well, the guy comes out of his garage and he's just in tears. And he comes up to me and he gets in my face right away. And he just says, how come you never say hello to me? And now this is Los Angeles and nobody says hello to anybody. Like I've, I've had neighbors, you just have basically a brick wall between you. Your heads might pass each other walking up and down your sidewalks. And so, I mean, we kind of developed a habit of creating this kind of social distance. And I, I might've said hi to him here and there, but I mean, admittedly, maybe I didn't. And it seemed that in that moment, he was having just this existential breakdown where this simple recognition of him demanded that I say hello and give him a greeting. And so it's even within the, the sort of like basic pronouncements of, of our existence, just merely by saying hello and recognizing the other, that order words subsist. And, and in the meltdown, we, we, we saw it as an injunction towards me, please say hello to me. I need you to say hello to me. And that was probably the saddest, most existentially dark game of peekaboo I ever had to play <laughs> with a neighbor. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. Adam, do you have anything or Will on speech act theory? JL Austin? I mean, it, it, it really just is what breaks the analytics out of the, I mean, because we say analytic philosophy, there are really two strains of analytic philosophy, which you can split across the life of Wittgenstein, which is the, of the true conditional semantics, maybe of the, of the, of the Tractatus and the more pragmatics of the later Wittgenstein philosophical investigations. Well, even for example, you have the great project of analytic philosophy and its demand for clarity, which I think is always a police-like demand, demand for clarity, which is, yeah, we have to disambiguate everything. We, the idea that, for example, when the uh, Principia Mathematica with Whitehead and Russell, they were going to provide an ideal logical language, which can translate all statements into, and then we can use propositional calculus, formal logic for undergrads and that, in order to calculate this. And this, this tradition has survived somewhat in machine learning, for example. I mean, because a lot of the formal language techniques developed by the, the, old, the logicians of the 20th century where then went into coding and defining logical languages through set theory. Jose Delabado's got a great book on this, actually, Instructions to the Theory of Logic, which is like a good textbook on this. But the problem was, was that it is, it is a reductive aspect. It is carving everything out of language, the life out of language even more to render it a skeletal machinic process. Or, I mean, the reason why we talk about machinic processes in this sense of locutions because they produce things. There's input and output. Language is a machine. You input living things into it and something comes out. You, in, you input a grammar, a grammatical aspect into a human. They come out speaking a certain phrase, a certain kind of this language. You'd be at the Queen's English. Or there was, we'd use a weird example, actually. There's a scene from the comic book, The Invisibles, 
by Grant Morrison, when they utter the word name of name the demon, and this demon's name is A B C D E F G H H I J K L L O P Q R S T U V W X Y and Z. That's the demon's name. And that's the alphabet designed to constrain all human thought of in uh, that many letters. So that's, that's a good way of thinking about the order words as a grammatical function of hierarchy, just as a weird example there. But the illocutionary aspect of speech act is also very good for the political ways in which they count, they, they cash this out. Because a collective structure of enunciation, which is say a collective assemblage of a, of a new kind of speaking, is how they're going to think about the political, particularly a mass politics. A conjunction of all these different minoritized ways of speaking and ways of living, which can then articulate for themselves a new transformation of society, a desire for a new life. And the examples I give this really are, are quite traditional. For example, I mean, the, the, the example of statements that transform themselves politically are usually Bolshevik ones. For example, Lenin's all power to the Soviets becomes transformed into sort of all, all power to the Soviets. Actually, no, it's going to be all power to the party. But that collective assemblage of Soviets is what allows for that sort of statement to have such a power that it transforms the state of Russia into a state of civil war between different assemblages of incorporeal transformation. For example, the whites, the white army are going to try and incorporeally transform the body of Nicholas II into a sovereign body of the Tsar. And this is so, this, the, the very prospect of this incorporeal transformation is so terrifying with its potential that a coronation is not allowed to happen. And so the Bolsheviks take the Romanovs out back, throw them down the mineshaft. Because the prospect of this incorporeal transformation has real political efficacy. And so these speech acts, whilst we're using big political examples here and traditionally more authoritarian examples, this is one of the ways they try and cash them out. But this is to say, for example, that any performative speech act is therefore authoritarian. And this is very much this idea of how dare you say hello to me in the street? You are forcing me into a conversation with you. Oh my God, this, you know, this is an authoritarian foisting of conversation onto people. It's, it's not like that. It's just an ordering of life. It's a structuring aspect, an insignifying structuring aspect. But it does have these strong world historical implications. Right. And I think maybe the thing to add to that is the, the role of resonance. Um, so one of the, the basic examples that they, they highlight is just the simple pronouncement by the judge of guilty to someone, right? You go through a trial, there's a, proce there's a procedure there. I mean, arguably, the, the whole process of a trial is basically an arrangement of these order words in a, in a very sort of complex manner that comes to the point of a verdict whereby the judge hands down the final judgment of guilty or not guilty. And when that guilty charge is leveled, things happen. The entire status of the then criminal changes. An incorporeal transformation takes place. Now they are the body of the condemned. They will either go to prison or suffer, suffer capital punishment. But not anybody can say guilty. I can't just go out on the street and just point to a random person and say guilty. Part of the collective assemblage of enunciation is the, this idea that all of these material factors come together. They're, they're overdetermined not only by linguistic factors, but even, I would say, the courthouse as a material edifice and a material force makes the, the leveling of the guilty charge potent. So, I mean, in, in this... This is why, for example, like, I mean, there, there are plenty of other examples that we can make of this. I now pronounce you husband and wife or, or any number of examples like that, where a, a kind of pronouncement is made at a, at a commencement, for example, welcome the graduates of 2023. It's in that moment that then those bodies are then changed. Do we have any other lingering concepts, concerns, abstract machines, things we want to talk about? I think this may be one of the more openly political plateaus, actually, in a dense metaphysical text that I think makes Deleuze's engagement with Foucault kind of far more, far more metaphysically rich mm. in a certain way. I was, I've, because I'm always in a state of perpetual crisis with my education. I was just listening to, to Foucault's discipline and punish, just walking around the brutalist 
campus that I study and work at. And I, I realized that in a certain sense, like the postulates of linguistics is in a kind of way, uh, it opens, I think the, the fact that it opens with the classroom is, I think, really indicative of the importance of Deleuze's engagement with the the political work that was going on at the GIP in the early 70s and that just how much of a of an impact that that left on him i mean the way in which he discusses the the incorporeal transformation of subjects in capitalist modernity is i think part and parcel to his understanding of the disciplinary society in his reading of Foucault, which I'm sure one day we'll get to. But yeah, I think in some ways the postulates of linguistics and and maybe a few other plateaus are in some ways Deleuze himself working through a kind of ontologically dense reading of Foucault's history. So maybe I'll leave it I'll leave it with that because I've been pestering my Twitter followers with quotes from the later chapters of DMP. So yeah. Maybe the one thing that we haven't said enough about, but we could probably save for another time, especially if we talk about Kafka, is the use of minor languages towards some sort of political aim or in what ways, asking the question, in what ways do the minor languages or the minor literatures have political efficacy? And I mean, uh, Adam had brought up Glissant and, and, and some other folks as well, but it also reminds me of the episode that we did with Ray Armentrout and the whole tradition of language poetry. And when I say language poetry, that's in all capitals with a dash in between each letter, language. And just thinking about that, like Ron Silliman and, and, and other folks in that tradition broke from traditional verse, from traditional meter, and tried to arrange languages, phrases, make very interesting and terse juxtapositions in such a way to create this kind of political effect. And I think Ray Armentrout's poetry is, is paradigmatic of, of that use, especially for American poetry and readers of American poetry. And maybe I'll, I'll slap that, um, a link to that episode in, in the show notes if you haven't listened. Adam, do you want to finish this up? Is there anything that you want to add? A couple things, really. One, just to highlight the idea of minority versus majority. It's not a binary in of itself. It's just, it's not that it's two different languages that are opposed to each other. It's the different functions of language. Mm. And yes, minority is nothing itself quantitative. For example, throughout what could loosely be called so-called Christendom in the medieval periods, priests were not the majority of people, and yet they, they were the major force, ideological force, when it comes to incorporeal transformations. And Latin, in many ways, was the major language. Mm. Monarchs would, would speak to each other in Latin because they'd be educated in that. Or, for example, Prussia, Frederick the Great, preferred to speak French at court, despite being a, a Prussian king. But I guess one of the questions I want to throw out, just to end this, or one of the things to focus on, is a different aspect to the word, or the order word, which Deleuze and Guattari tried to bring out at the end of this plateau. And here's a quote from page 128, Bluesbury edition. One should bring forth the order word of the order word. In the order word, life must answer the answer of death, not by fleeing, but by making flight, act, and create. There are passwords beneath order words. Words that pass, words are the components of passage, whereas order words mark stoppages or organized stratified compositions. A single thing or word undoubtedly has this twofold nature. It is necessary to extract one from the other, to transform the compositions of order into compositions of passage. Hmm. And passwords really are words of fugitivity, words that hmm. are making an exit from a dominant strata. And you could think of even, you could, you could go to Luther nailing down the feces as a list of words of passage, really, to escaping all the words, or sola fide. Or we can think about words that break from the dominant language that, or a dominant structure of grammar, which, which they cannot understand. One could speak in language that the poshos of, of Britain maybe would understand, and therefore you won't conspire against them. But this theory of the password, I think, is one of the really optimistic aspects here, because it is a passage away from the ordering that one has received. And also, it's, it's, it's the presupposition of ordering, mm. because the organization of a body presupposes a virtual potentiality of that body, 
which can therefore be tapped into and then organized and if needs to be reorganized. We know this in our economy. We know that under precarious conditions of labor, you're changing your body into a delivery machine, into an Amazon stocking machine, into a teaching machine, into a posting machine, because posting is creating a commodity of data and specific ad revenue. We're doing this all the time. So they're pointing out a real material and in many ways, linguistic basis for an escape that's always already happening. Mm. And this is why the enemy fear words so much. Despite the fact they always claim to be pretending to love words, defending linguistic heritage, defending great writers from censure, they, they, they are very scared of words. They're very scared of one can declare one's passage to another form of life, to a state of life without their sanction. We mm. can see this particularly in the transphobic scares across the world, the idea of people being open to the plasticity of their bodies and the potentials of connection with other human beings. And this is why this plateau is, in many ways, a, a, to use a phrase of Nietzsche, a grand declaration of war and remains as such. Because there are passwords. And what's pass, what the passwords that you get into? The underground club of conspiring against the great Satan. I, I hate to steal your thunder there, Adam, but I do want to highlight what I think is a fascinating aesthetic implication there as well is when one feels inspired, whether you're a musician or a writer or doing any sort of fine arts, for example, that the tendency or the compulsion to express oneself in an intelligible register or in an, an intelligible way, whether that's a genre or a motif of sorts, you know, what, what underlies this, this impulse to create our own passwords is sometimes to submit ourselves to those extant passwords of the symbolic order. And I think anybody trying to create a new genre or just to find some sort of expression that isn't immediately subsumed by something that's already out there remains this, this persistent and perennial challenge to the artists. And I, I think there's a way in which we can think about, especially when it comes to poetry or writing novels and things like that, is how do we find a line of flight in our aesthetic expressions? And I, this even goes for having just dreams at night. If you're the kind of person inclined to wanting to take your dreams into therapy, well, what you're really asking the psychoanalyst, whether they're Freudian or Jungian, to do is how do these fit into an intelligible symbolic order? Or what can your symbolic order do for this, this sort of intensive explosion, this this lifting of the veil of the agonies that is my dream or my creative impulse. It reminds me of that example that David Lynch, that re he recalls one time he went to a therapist and he the first thing he asked the therapist, he's like, sir, is this therapy going to impact my creative ability in any way? Is there any risk of that happening? And the therapist responded to him, well, David, it, it might actually do that. And David Lynch then extended his hand for a handshake. He's like, thank you. Have a nice day. I will not be doing this. And so he was able to head off the risk that, that, that we've highlighted here today. All right. Well, with that said, that's the postulates of linguistics, and we'll do some other wrap-up episodes and some other fun stuff coming soon.